it's rather lovely to have the opportunity to come and join you to walk into the the house to walk into this meditation hall and really feel the the sense of you all here and the way that you are here and I'd like to speak this afternoon with regard to the realm of body it's something that the has a very central place in the Dharma teachings and the, the Buddha's instructions for practice, really a, a primary foundation for attention, for exploration, for reflection, and a, a place in which we can really come to understand a lot about freedom, equally as we can understand a lot about suffering and entanglement. This sense of what it means to be embodied or to be a being with a body, it would seem, in a body, we might say, or however we might attempt to describe that, there's this which we call embodied experience. And it's a central aspect of what it means to be what we are, what it means to be a human being. It's described in the, the teachings as the, you know, the first foundation for giving attention to the first foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness teachings. And so when we look at the body and we encounter our body in meditation very clearly, when we come into the immediacy of our experience and see how often we can be drawn, compelled and uh, seduced, it seems, by the the remarkable myriad fascinating worlds the mind can create that draw us away from immediacy, from the direct contact with our experience, that the sense of what we call body is right here. It's happening right now. We don't find it in some other place. And so it's a very direct conduit, a very direct gateway to that sense of immediacy, to that quality of presence that we are invited to develop, to connect with, to explore more and more deeply in the meditative journey. So there's a way in which the body is both a, a field of experience within which we can ground our attention by bringing ourselves back again and again to what's happening here. And... Uh, Certainly in the early days of a retreat, it's a real support and refuge when the mind is busy, when the mind is active, when there's lots of thinking or strong, powerful or charged patterns of emotional experience arising to be able to refer back to the body, to come back into what does it feel right now to be sitting here, to be standing here, to be walking here wherever we are, to actually know the, the simple, direct experience of that. So there's this way in which it supports us to come back into the present moment, to be consciously connected with where we are. And there's also a way in which the, the body is used in the practice as a, 
as a field of contemplation, as something from which, through reflecting upon the nature of our experience of what we call body, we can come to see the nature of life, the nature of all experience. And within that, understand very directly and intimately how we become entangled and how we can be liberated in this field, in this flow, in this unfolding experience of life, including that of bodily life. So the process of contemplating body. So I imagine something very familiar, these teachings, for, for most of you. It's uh, spoken of again and again in so many different ways in the in the teachings. But just coming back to the acknowledging of this fundamental capacity to pay attention to, that underpins, that is uh, crucial and pivotal in the whole transformative process, that we have this capacity to turn towards. And it's something remarkable, something, in fact, quite mysterious and easily taken for granted. But we utilize it because we can to turn towards bodily experience. And when the Buddha speaks about paying attention to the body, giving attention to the body, <laughs> contemplating the body, and he speaks of it in quite some detail in various places, certainly the, uh, as I mentioned, the Satipatthana Sutta, which many of you will be familiar with, and also um, the Kayagata Sati Sutta, which is the teaching about paying attention to the body, Kaya being body there. And there's a, a kind of a range of ways we can pay attention to the body. And the first that's generally listed and spoken about, and uh, again, I imagine very familiar, but it's paying attention to the breath. Getting to know this very core and central human bodily experience of drawing in and releasing the air drawing into our body and releasing it. And what goes on in the bodily system, in the experience as that happens? Coming to know that, and we use that often as as an anchor, as a ground for our attention to come back to the breath, to really get to know how it is that this body breathes and that it really breathes by itself. We don't have to have a certain kind of breath in this practice or make it be in a particular way learning to really trust that the breath and the breathing process has an organic intelligence to it. And I I find it useful to think of it in terms of the breathing process rather than talking about the breath per se. When the Buddha, when he speaks about it, or the word he uses, anapanasati, it's like it translates as mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out, anapanasati. I think breathing in, pana, breathing out, or the other way around. I expect it's that way. I'm not a Pali scholar. Um, But that sense of, it's actually a rhythmic flowing process. We can talk about the breath as if it's a something. And in one moment it is. It's this feeling of expansion or flow or coolness or warmth or release or whatever we notice in the moment. But there's also a way in which we see others that there's actually a process going on here that we call breathing. That's an interactive, engaged process that involves bodily life and that elemental world around us of the air. 
And so it, it points to, it speaks a little bit to something very fundamental about what we can discover in meditation practice. This attention to the body, this attention to the breathing within the body serves a certain calming, steadying, settling, of course, and that's important, but it equally illuminates some of the key characteristics of what's actually going on. It's actually a pointer equally to the the nature of this experience and the way in which the embodied experience is engaging with, interfacing with what we call the world around it in that drawing in from and releasing back to. This process of taking in and giving back. It's not just oxygen with regard to which we do that. But it's a very obvious place where we can tune into that, that receiving or taking, that giving, releasing process, that cycle. So there's something about just settling into that very deeply as a, as a foundation, knowing it as it is. Rough or smooth, long or short, deep or shallow. A simple phrases from the teachings that we maybe hear many times the variety of what's possible in that experience and the, the trusting of it. That, ah, okay, it's like this. We don't always need to know why it's like this. But by allowing ourselves to be in touch with how it is, we can often see the tendency of mind to imagine or wish it for it to be other. It would be nice if it was long, deep, and sort of rather gently pleasurable so that I'd really want to be with it. And then, you know, we can just imagine where that might take us. In the world of meditation, you know, the breath can become the object of desire, of I'd really like to to be with that more. As if somehow that would be the fulfilment of our practice. And of course it really serves that. It really serves the practice. But at another level, it's simply an experience. And in terms of the attention, mindfulness of the body, it's a, it's a primary place, it's a, a good place to begin. So we speak of it often. And together with that, then giving attention to the posture, to the basic framework of the body. Knowing whether it's sitting, standing, walking or lying. Getting to know what that's like. Each of those postures represents different qualities more clearly. In lying meditation, there's obviously potential for a lot of relaxation. Sometimes a little too much. Though the, the Buddha did lying meditation on his side, and if you've seen images of that, lying meditation, according to the Buddha, is done lying on your right-hand side with your arm under your head and your elbow pointing straight up, which mine doesn't do. But it's actually not as likely that one falls asleep lying down um, in that posture as in others. In standing meditation, there's a lot of quality of uprightness, a very sort of strong, upright quality is central to that. In walking, it's more to do with fluidity and change. And in sitting, it's a very interesting balance between the capacity for that upright quality and that relaxing quality, that relaxed quality that we learn to find balance between. And uh, this is, I think, one of the reasons why for many of us sitting becomes a very central posture in practice and not just because that's what all the images of the Buddha seem to be doing most of the time. And the stories we talk about, you know, going to meditate, we think of going to sit under the tree or in the cave or on the mountain. 
And yet all of the postures have something to offer in terms of a, a very rounded and full development of, of mindfulness, a development of the mind and heart, in fact. So noticing the posture that we're in and the transitions from one to another, the movement from this posture to that posture. And the very simple way it's described in the, in the, in the teachings, it's just the, the noticing, you know, when stretching one's arm, one notices one's stretching it. When flexing it, one notices one's flexing it. I remember when I was first following the, you know, the details of the instructions in that way from the, from the Satipatthana Sutta, just realizing, oh, you know, that's all that one ever does. All the different com- complicated and sometimes useful things I've ever done with my body were variations on extending a joint or flexing it. Reaching for, you know, extending while this one's flexing. And, and all of that, and just it starts to just, oh, it simplifies. It's just this kind of movement. Something interesting about that, at least for me, it seemed. But there's a way in which we draw by that everything in. Because nothing happens without us either being in the same posture or moving into a new one. Anything that we do involves some of that. Whether staying here or changing. There's a flexion or an extension of a limb or a joint or something. Even breathing in, it's various muscles extending. Actually, various muscles flexing, tightening. Opens the body up and then we release them, they extend and the body softens. Seeing how that works can be a very becoming not just seeing how it works, but becoming interested in that can be a really helpful way to weave the day into something more unified. To not have just the now I'm doing sitting meditation, now I'm doing walking. Maybe I'll do a bit of standing. I don't know about that practice. You know, it's not such a popular one. It seems personally, I love it, but it's not not the most common thing to see happening. Um, and lying meditations, you know, it sounds like that's probably a bit of the sort of bit of a cop-out really but uh, it's not it's you know an interesting practice in its own right Um, but really the formal practices are just one part of it to really allow the practice to penetrate as deeply as it has the potential to for each of us include it all everything through the day without making that somehow into a project you've got to succeed at because of course no one's going to do that perfectly. But that we don't consciously abandon parts of the day. Particularly as you settle, and this might make a little more sense in the, you know, the coming days. For many of you, just been here two or three. It's just the you know, settling in. But as you settle, really that sense of don't leave anything out. Don't leave anything out. And the body, again, is great support for that. Including all activities. And what are activities? It's things our body is doing. So there we are, we come back. You can also contemplate the body in terms of the elements. It's also really helpful, very useful to just go beyond the images and the concepts and the ideas we have about our body. I mean, it's so painful, some of the ways we relate to body, the ideas of how it looks or how it should look, how it feels or how it should feel, the images that you know include... All these ideas about body. Yet when we come to it directly, it's sensations. There's warmth and coolness, pressure, 
and space. And sometimes a sense of cohesion or movement. And at an elemental level, we can understand these that pressure is, is earth element. Sort of firmness, hardness, or absence of it is absence of earth element. Movement is air element. Notice things shift, change. It's movement, it's air element. Temperature is fire element. We feel warmth, coolness. Cohesion is understood as water element. That sense of things being held or gathered together rather than dispersed. And I remember always wondering when I first was sort of encountering that teaching, why is water cohesion? It seems more like fluid or something to me, or wet. And the kind of the reflection or the explanation is, oh, if you look what happens when you add water to a pile of flour or a pile of dust, immediately it becomes something cohered. Dough or mud or, you know, if you take the body out of this, sorry, if you take the water out of this body, it's just dust. That's it. And so there's that sense of that sense of cohering, cohering, and then the the fifth element is we could say openness, absence, in terms of experience, which represents the element of space, or expresses the element of space. And someone's just noticing these elemental qualities in the body. Oh, this is temperature. We see that it's something we share with all matter, all material has in it as an express or as a um, sort of a foundation for existing, a combination of these different elemental qualities of, of, of pressure, movement, temperature, cohesion, and space. And in some ways that's what it is. That's what we're encountering. When we look at the body in that more elemental sense, it's sometimes a little easier to, to not get so invested, to not hold so tightly onto the ideas we have about how it should be how we wish it was, and the amount of really pain and suffering that arises through comparing how it is, this body, with our ideals about how it should be, or our comparisons with how somebody else's might be. In that also we really see the sensations at that more vibratory moment-to-moment level as something we see they come and go. They change. No pattern of sensation arising in the body stays the same for any great length of time. Even if it's something we think, it's still the same. You know, if there's a pain somewhere in our knee, we think it's still hurting, right? It's been hurting for 10 minutes, or, you know, I've had this for the last 10 years. Those kind of thoughts arise. But if you really watch it, if you really go into the body with sensitivity and care, you notice, oh, actually, it hurts just here. And now it hurts just, just a fraction to the left or right or above or slightly more or slightly less. And we see the changing nature of experience and sensations that essentially flicker into existence and dissolve moment after moment. Although it sometimes seems that there's a very similar one happening in the same spot over an extended period. We see they come and go. They come and go. And in that, they can't give us lasting satisfaction. They can't in themselves ultimately prevent us from being at peace or at ease in our lives. And yet so easily we give them that power. So we, we contemplate the characteristics of, of impermanence, of uns, sort of unsatisfactoriness. Is, 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 always sounds a bit like being disappointed, but it, it's more like unsatisfiability. Like they don't have the capacity to give satisfaction. 
That doesn't make them unsatisfactory in one sense. It means they can't give us satisfaction. That's the nature of the thing that we contemplate. And seeing in that, they, they come and go. They're not really ours in any meaningful sense. When we experience the body at that more elemental level, it's kind of obvious. Any more than we own fire or water or earth or space or air. We don't. It's just something that's arising of which this body is a, a manifestation, an expression, and sort of a, a formation growing out of, dependent upon. So there's a way in which these contemplations, or this, this practice of attending to the body, begins with a way of grounding, stabilizing, and focusing, allowing us to really settle more deeply into the experience of being here, which this body is a primary element of. And then as we do that, it starts to give us support and point us towards the possibility of being less identified with this body, being less held in the perception that this is somehow me or mine, and more able to see, oh, this is something that's happening. And it, it really is happening. There's no, we're not saying it's not happening. But how we relate to that happening really makes all the difference. So the Buddha goes on from speaking about breath, posture, parts of the body. The um, Actually, I didn't mention that. I jumped over that one. He also speaks about noticing, feeling the different parts of the body. And noticing how it's this and that and the other thing. It's not all of the same. And the, uh, the image is as, as if going through a sack full of different sorts of grains. Saying, oh, this is, this is rice. This is wheat. This is millet. This is sesame. And that, and just distinguishing, oh, it's like this, oh, this is a kidney, this is a left leg, this is a, you know, a knee, this is a, a lung, or feeling what it's like inside, in those places. And, uh, and with that, the word and the translation for the, for the teaching around this is often, you know, reflecting or contemplating the impurity of the body. And it's really important that we understand that, although... There's probably uh, teachings that have been given that suggest otherwise. As I understand it, it's very clear that the Buddha isn't saying when we talk about impurity, some kind of something that's bad or you know unclean or to be rejected in terms of those. That's sort of um, the way we use impurity as almost like a condemnation. But that it's much more about seeing when we talk about pure in the same way you know if you buy something in the shop and it says pure apple juice. It doesn't mean that the stuff is holy or that impure apple juice would somehow be, you know, not holy. It means this is apple juice and only apple juice. Nothing else in here. Hmm? It's just one thing. Whereas it's not pure apple juice, you know, it's apple drink. It's had sugar and water and various other things added. And we know the difference. So too, in terms of the bodily experience, seeing, oh, it's impure in the sense of it's got all these different things in it. And when we look at it in terms of all these different things, we often have a different relationship to it. We don't necessarily feel quite so identified with it. It's more like, oh, it's one of these and one of those. and I'm not sure I'm one of these. I'm not sure I'm one of those. And So maybe I'm not quite so convinced that I'm all of these things put together. And that's really who I am. Do you follow the difference in terms of understanding the word that's it's again it's a translation when we use the word impurity, um, 
And because of our kind of Western, and not just Western, but it's certainly common in the West, a certain cultural attitude to body that associates it with sin and badness, um, it's really important to see that this is not what the Buddha is suggesting about being, having, or living with a body, that it somehow implies anything negative per se. It's more about seeing that we project onto this unified, you know, thing, something that it can't quite sustain. And if we ever see a body without its skin, we realise it's a very different thing than our image of it. Yeah? So that's where that contemplation comes from. Supporting us to let go of the identification with our body. That tends we have to take this to be who we are. So we're using it to be present, to focus, to connect, to explore but not to reinforce an identity. And then the next uh, piece that the Buddha adds in contemplating the body when he teaches about it, when he reflects on it, is inviting and encouraging the contemplation of death. That if we look at this body, we have to look at it not just in the here and now, in a sense. It's interesting, you know, we often think the Buddha's teacher was all focus on, look at the here and now, but actually sometimes he really encourages, he says, no, contemplate the future. He does. He doesn't use quite that language, but it's like, contemplate the future in which this body will no longer be quite the way it is now. And that, you know, that they're in the, um, in the same body of teaching and the same sutta which talks about mindfulness of breath and mindfulness of body, then contemplate this body's demise as part of a healthy relationship to body, knowing it's not here forever. As a way of supporting a releasing of our attachment to the body, the sense we have of believing that we get to keep this, because we don't. And the skeleton in the walking room, which some of you will have had occasion to spend some time with, is a, there really is a reminder for us. You know, the Buddha talks about going and seeing a dead body and then a body that's um, been there a wee while and starting to look and probably smell a bit unpleasant and then seeing the body with the flesh dropping off and then with just the bones and then the bones bleached and then the bones just little chunks of powder and then eventually blown away. So the whole, what it would be like to watch a body disintegrate and disappear. And uh, it's really interesting what, it's to, what it does to do that as a contemplation practice, as a practice of bringing our attention to. There's so much in that, I'm not really going to go into detail with it, but the, to really get that this is part of what happens to this body. There's an uh, epitaph on a gravestone in Norfolk, I believe. I haven't seen it myself, but I've read that that's where it's located, that it, it, it's the, basically the last words of someone who died, I guess, or his last communication, goes like this. And it says, uh, Remember, friends, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. And... I find it a remarkably uplifting and even delightful last communication to leave behind for the world. And it's very much in line with what the Buddha suggested. 
that we do to really get to know this is so. And again here, it doesn't mean that we then reject the body or we see it as somehow not to be deeply honoured and appreciated because it's temporary, because it's not forever. We might feel like, you know, I got a bad deal. I got a sort of a... I, I would have much rather had one that lasted forever. It might be an idea that arises for us. Um, but what I actually find when I contemplate this primary reality of bodily existence is that actually one feels much more the sense of the preciousness and the caring for this body comes much more clearly to the fore. There's a a lovely uh, passage in a poem by Mary Oliver entitled When Death Comes where she speaks about her her sense of this. I won't read the whole poem but she's talking about... um, when death comes. And she says, I want to step through that door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy. And a singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth. Tending as all music does. Towards silence. And each body a lion of courage. And something precious to this earth. And so that that sense of contemplating. The temporiness of this body is part of a really full, mindful attention to this body can bring for us that sense of, you know, this this body is something precious to the earth, to life, we could say. Something about that that maybe can bring a softness and a kindness into our relationship to this body. It may not be quite the one we'd imagined or hoped we might have got, and certainly if it was, it didn't necessarily stay that way at least not mine. Um, And yet there can still be a really deep appreciation for this body. It's part of the practice of mindfulness of body. And with that, in terms of that sense of what does that speak to us, there's a lovely um, experience shared by someone who sat a retreat here just recently that I was teaching the week before this month-long retreat and it's something that this person shared in the end of sort of at the end of the retreat in the gathering describing how in contemplating the skeleton the the question came or the sense of the skeleton expressing a sense of I wish I'd been more kind as if that might have been one of the things that one's life left one with the wisdom of or the understanding of and how this person then described when they were recognizing the sense of the skeleton inside their own body that it would speak to them you could be more kind very interesting experience i was very touched to hear it described quite beautifully as it was and that sense of how the the contemplating death or contemplating a skeleton that at the moment is wrapped in flesh but will not always be that it has something to speak to us something to tell us that maybe it's important for us to hear. 
So there's this sense of honouring this body in the contemplation of death, of letting go an attachment to it, but at the same time understanding that it's precious. And you know, the Buddha speaks of this precious human birth, this opportunity to hear the Dharma, to practice the Dharma, to realise the Dharma of liberation. And that comes together with this temporary human embodied experience when we take it on fully, when we take it on wholeheartedly. And so again and again we come back to that. We're invited to turn towards body, to make this body, its breathing, its posture, its felt sense, all of that, to let it be known deeply, contemplated deeply. And we can see also when we when we turn towards this that it's something that's not just a foundation for an insight practice. Of course, it is very much a foundation for that practice, but it equally applies and has its role, the, the sense of body and the attention to body within the other practices that we might include or that we might be focusing on in a retreat such as this. And... Uh, in terms of practicing loving kindness or metta meditation or cult- contemplating the, the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and peace, the met- metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, that in those practices we actually need to be grounded in our body. They can sometimes, and there's, there's something quite lovely in the very expansive, contemplative, and sort of reflective elements where one brings out where one evokes and connects with a, a felt sense of some other being or something one wishes for, that again isn't just about what's actually happening here and now, but that's tapping into something that's nonetheless very central and important in our sense of caring for or um, kindness towards, appreciation of, or being at peace with these experiences. And yet, because of that very remarkable and beautiful capacity that we engage in the loving-kindness practices, the Brahma-Vihara practices, there's a way we can sometimes get a little bit out of our bodies. And I always uh, uh, remember with a lot of appreciation having a story shared by uh, one of my teachers. And I, I'd actually just described to her, I was feeling a little embarrassed because I've been doing loving-kindness meditation for, I think, probably two or three weeks. I did it for six weeks at that particular practice um, on that retreat but a couple of weeks in I described to her how I went to get a cup of tea and there's a big pot of tea in the middle of the room and I went so full of kindness and warmth and friendliness wishing well for everyone else for myself nice cup of tea may the pot of tea be happy picked up the pot held my cup and I just caught it as the stream of tea was about to come out of the teapot and I noticed that my mug was upside down and I was just about if it had hit the top of the mug, I would have scalded my hand and everyone within a certain radius probably because the hot tea would have just gone out off the top. And it was like, oh, there was lots of loving kindness, not a lot of mindfulness of body going on. And, you know, we were reflecting on this. I was a little embarrassed. And she said, yeah, it happens like that. Um, a teacher, Michelle McDonald smith in America. Um, and uh, she, she said, you know, and actually, I've just now that I've I wasn't going to name her. Now, can I tell the story? I guess I can. Yeah, um, I wasn't actually going to say who told me the story, but I think it's all right. Um, she said she described how once when she was practicing doing this loving kindness meditation, she uh, at one point went and got her meal, 
and took it back to where she was sitting, which was in a sort of a lounge-type chair, not at a table. And then she went to go and get herself a drink, and she walked back and sat in her dinner. (laughs) And it was like, you know, we were reflecting on the need to be actually a little more mindful when doing the loving-kindness practice. (laughs) And so that mindfulness of body, just knowing, oh, I just put a plate down here. Well, I picked up a cup, and it needs to have the open side to the top to work. Those sort of qualities that being in the body supports us staying connected in that way, which is really important in the, in the loving-kindness meditation. And the, the being in touch with the body also really lets us feel the sensitivity, the vulnerability, the human predicament of this body that experiences discomfort, that so longs to be at ease, that can be hurt and so much wishes for safety and protection and that when we feel into that when we allow that to be known directly it can really support again that opening of the heart of kindness of caring of compassion for our human condition and that the condition of others too so attention to the body supports in this way in these both these ways the development of the the Brahma Viharas, which may be something that you're including as a as a primary or as a you know occasional focus within your practice. Use it. The body is also a very important, central, and and supportive in in the development of shamatha, of uh, of calm, of focus, of gathering, of collecting. And I know uh, Rob was going to speak about what supports the development of samatha. Samatha, Pali, Shamatha, Sanskrit, uh, calm, English, um, or tranquility sometimes translated, but it's actually slightly different. Um, that sense of, so I'm not going to say too much about it, but um, one of the primary things that happens as we start to settle more fully into our body, it's the place where a lot of the agitated energy that gets the mind or keeps the mind spinning, it's where we can earth it. It's like the body is in contact with the ground and coming into the body with all that sort of got to do this, what about that, oh I haven't sorted this out kind of activity, coming into the body, the body's moving more slowly than the mind. The mind can move so quickly. And so coming into the body, it sort of acts as an anchoring, as a slowing down of that momentum. It allows it, sometimes we feel the discomfort of it in the body sometimes. But if we can allow that, then that actually allows the, the churning, the spinning, the whizzing energy to start to settle, to ground, to quiet. And ultimately to become still. And in that, in the coming back into the body, coming out of the stories, out of the thoughts and the reactions and the perceptions that tend to spin the activity more, that operate as a, in a way, a challenge to that development of calm, of samatha, that coming into the body actually settles it, grounds it. And it's like a container that can hold that kind of energy. The mind can't really hold it, which is why it goes, you know, running around trying to deal with it in a way that doesn't work. But the body seems to be the field, the ground, the earth for that. And as we become more grounded, more earth, more established in the body, as the mind settles, as it quietens and deepens, it's, the, it's actually the energetic field of consciousness in the body that the mind can settle into. 
as its initial place of absorbing, we can understand that as the consciousness in the body. Now there are practices in which the body isn't so central in terms of the development of of samatha, of concentration, but the initial practices require the body to be very fully included. And the you know the the image that the the Buddha used often as an initial way of understanding it's like allowing this body to be soaked with the qualities of consciousness that one is cultivating: the calm, the focus, the stillness, the openness, the sense of uh, aliveness that's there. Allowing the body to be soaked in them the way that a skilled um, bath um, attendant or a bath attendant's apprentice, that's the way the Buddha would phrase, kind of great phrases, a bath attendant or a bath attendant's um, apprentice would soak a ball of soap powder with moisture, just enough to make it malleable. Not so it turned sloppy and dribbled, but not so that it was just loose and flying apart. And something about the body becoming that sort of malleable, moist, fluid medium in which, and it may be a, a intentional association, but you know, soap ball, in terms of just the cleaning, the cleansing effect, there's a certain purifying that takes place in that unifying of consciousness in the body. So it's not just unified in itself, the consciousness and absorption and, and concentration and samatha, but it's unified in and with the body. And that's actually a condition that the body really appreciates, equally as does the mind. So, so it's, I guess, not surprising that one hears often in the teachings of the importance of the encouragement to bring mindfulness, bring attention to the body, both in that element of bare attention, of just knowing it's this experience arising here, but equally at times in that more contemplative, reflective, recognizing, noticing the character of what's going on in the body. So the qualities of of sati, of mindfulness, together with sampajanya, clear comprehension that come together. The Buddha spoke of sati sampajanya, the, the mindfulness and the understanding together. And that's actually what really allows the deepening of the wisdom and compassion in the heart. And so the Buddha, if you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes the Buddha gives the instructions, then he goes on to say, and this is what you get from it. And I always find that kind of amu- sort of amusing. It's a, it's lovely in a sense, but it's not. Like, he doesn't hold back from saying, "Yes, actually, we're not just doing it because it's you know kind of an interesting thing to do." We, we we work on the sense of not trying to do it with a goal in mind or not trying to get somewhere. And it's really important to balance that at the same time. So not being attached to an outcome, we're trying to through effort or will get to some place of concentration or open-heartedness or clear seeing of um, the nature of things, not trying to make that happen, (coughs) but at the same time really recognizing that we're doing something that offers us a really transforming potentiality, something that can really support. And the Buddha, in the Kayagata Sati Sutta, he, he speaks about the benefits of mindfulness of the body. 
So I'd just like to share some of these with you. And so he speaks, one who practices and who establishes himself in mindfulness of the body. I was going to read it from the original, but I've been speaking a wee while already, so I'll give you the, the summary. And you can, if you're interested, it's, um, I think it's 119. It's the one after the Anapanasati Sutta. And for those of you who know, the read, follow, it's, yeah, it's, it's 119 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length sayings, mindfulness of the body. Um, if anyone's inclined in that direction. I'm not encouraging you to, it's just, (laughs) this is where it comes from. He says that one becomes a conqueror of discontent and delight. One is not conquered by these forces. So that sense of not being taken over by discontent, not being taken over by delight. And the sense of one's free amidst the arising of these. Likewise, one is not conquered by fear and dread. One becomes a conqueror of fear and dread. When there's this capacity to be really in the body, we find a certain groundedness and, in a way, substantiality that allows us to meet the challenging things. And he talks about being able to bear cold or heat or hunger or thirst, those things that might produce physical discomfort or harsh words or painful emotions, to be able to handle those things without being overwhelmed by them, being able to bear them. So those things that are difficult to bear, one can actually have a confidence, yeah, I can meet this. I don't need to be afraid of these things. When we're really in our body, there's a certain confidence we we derive from that. And he goes on to say, and one obtains through mindfulness of the body that the accessibility of concentration, of samatha, of calm, of absorption... It becomes easy or without difficulty and the possibility of a pleasant abiding here and now is revealed through this, through the mindfulness, being established in mindfulness of the body and through that the calming and settling of the heart and mind and absorption. And he equally goes on to speak about, as he does in various places, that one also obtains through this practice of mindfulness of body, one obtains the the supernormal powers of sensitivity, of being able to see and hear and perceive beyond the normal human realm and capacity. And, And through this practice that one reaches and abides in deliverance, in the liberation of heart and mind. And so this that we sometimes think is, you know, it's what we do at the beginning, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath. It's something that really leads onward in this teaching, in this practice, in the Buddha's dispensation as we we speak about it. Something that leads onward. It's a a phrase that's used to talk about the teachings that I always find very powerful, a sense of leading onward. It's like something opens up and draws us forward. And the Buddha, the Buddha said of, of mindfulness of body, he said, you know, and the contemplation of body, he said, within this fathom-long body, all of the Dharma is revealed. Suffering and its cause. The end of suffering and the path thereto. All this in this fathom-long body is revealed. And so I offer these reflections with really an encouragement to you to to practice this mindfulness of body, this 
full awareness of the embodied human experience. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments. Or longer if you wish, but I'll ring the bell in a few moments. So may we all, in our practice and in our lives, really come to know this experience of body, to rest in what it means to be embodied, and to see what this body has to offer. for our ground and for our liberation. In the service of our own welfare and the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.